Book 14, Part 1 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Haggerty. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 14, Part 1. Now the Euboean dweller in great waves, Glaucus, had left behind the crest of Etna, raised upward from a giant's head, and left the Cyclops' fields that never had been torn by harrow or by plough, and never were indebted to the toil of oxen yoked, left Xancli also, and the opposite walls of Regium, and the sea, abundant cause of shipwreck, which confined with double shores, bounds the Ausonian and Sicilian lands. All these behind him, Glaucus, swimming on with his huge hands through those Tyrrhenian seas, drew near the hills so rich in magic herbs, and halls of Circe, daughter of the sun, halls filled with men in guise of animals. After due salutations had been given, received by her as kindly, Glaucus said, You as a goddess certainly should have compassion on me a god, for you alone, if I am worthy of it, can relieve my passion. What the power of herbs can be, Titania, none knows more than I, for by their power I was myself transformed. To make the cause of my strange madness known, I have found Scylla on Italian shores directly opposite Messenian walls. It shames me to recount my promises and treaties and caresses, and at last rejection of my suit. If you have known a power of incantation, I implore you, now repeat that incantation here, with sacred lips. If herbs have greater power, use the tried power of herbs. But I would not request a cure, the healing of this wound. Much better than an end of pain, let her share and feel with me my impassioned flame. But Circe was more quick than any other to burn with passion's flame. It may have been her nature, or it may have been the work of Venus, angry at her tattling sire. You might do better, she replied, to court one who is willing, one who wants your love and feels a like desire. You did deserve to win her love, yes, to be wooed yourself. In fact, you might be. If you give some hope, you have my word, you shall indeed be wooed. That you may have no doubt, and so retain all confidence in your attraction's power, behold, I am a goddess, and I am the daughter also of the radiant sun, and I, who am so potent with my charms, and I, who am so potent with my herbs, wish only to be yours. Despise her who despises you, and her who is attached to you repay with like attachment, so by one act offer each her just reward. But Glaucus answered her attempt of love, The trees will sooner grow in ocean waves, the seaweed sooner grow on mountain tops, than I shall change my love for graceful Scylla. The goddess in her jealous rage could not and would not injure him, whom she still loved, but turned her wrath upon the one preferred. She bruised immediately the many herbs most infamous for horrid juices, which, when bruised, she mingled with most artful care and incantations given by Hecate. Then, clothed in azure vestments, she passed through her troop of fawning savage animals, and issued from the centre of her hall. Pacing from there to Regium, opposite the dangerous rocks of Zancli, she at once entered the tossed waves boiling up with tides. On these, as if she walked on the firm shore, she set her feet, and, hastening on, dry-shod, she skimmed along the surface of the deep. Not far away there was an inlet curved, round as a bent bow, which was often used by Scylla as a favorite retreat. 
There she withdrew from heat of sea and sky, when in the zenith blazed the unclouded sun and cast the shortest shadows on the ground. Circe infected it before that hour, polluting it with monster-breeding drugs. She sprinkled juices over it, distilled from an obnoxious root, and thrice times nine she muttered over it with magic lips, her most mysterious charm involved in words of strangest import and of dubious thought. Scylla came there and waded in waist-deep, then saw her loins defiled with barking shapes. Believing they could be no part of her, she ran and tried to drive them back and feared the boisterous canine jaws. But what she fled she carried with her, and, feeling for her thighs, her legs and feet, she found Serberian jaws instead. She rises from a rage of dogs, and shaggy backs encircle her shortened loins. The lover Glaucus wept. He fled the embrace of Circe and her hostile power of herbs and magic spells. But Scylla did not leave the place of her disaster, and, as soon as she had opportunity, for hate of Circe, she robbed Ulysses of his men. She would have wrecked the Trojan ships if she had not been changed beforehand to a rock which to this day reveals a craggy rim, and even the rock awakes the sailor's dread. After the Trojan ships, pushed by their oars, had safely passed by Scylla and the fierce Charybdis, and with care had then approached near the Ausonian shore, a roaring gale bore them far southward to the Libyan coast. And then Sidonian Dido, who was doomed not calmly to endure the loss of her loved Phrygian husband, graciously received Aeneas to her home and her regard, and on a pyre, erected with pretense of holy rites, she fell upon the sword. Deceived herself, she there deceived them all. Aeneas, fleeing the new walls built on that sandy shore, revisited the land of Eryx and Acestes, his true friend. There he performed a hallowed sacrifice and paid due honor to his father's tomb. And presently he loosened from that shore the ships which Iris, Juno's minister, had almost burned, and sailing passed far off the kingdom of the son of Hippotus in those hot regions smoking with the fumes of burning sulphur, and he left behind the rocky haunt of Achelous' daughters, the Sirens. Then, when his good ship had lost the pilot, he coasted near Anarami, near Procida, and near the barren hill which marks another island, Pithecusi, an island named from strange inhabitants. The father of the gods abhorred the frauds and perjuries of the Circopians, and for the crimes of that bad treacherous race transformed its men to ugly animals, appearing unlike men, although like men. He had contracted and had bent their limbs, and flattened out their noses, bent back towards their foreheads. He had furrowed every face with wrinkles of old age, and made them live in that spot, after he had covered all their bodies with long, yellow, ugly hair. Besides all that, he took away from them the use of language and control of tongues, so long inclined to dreadful perjury, and left them always to complain of life and their ill-conduct in harsh jabbering. After Aeneas had passed by all those, and seen to his right hand the distant walls guarding the city of Parthenope, he passed on his left hand a mound, grave of the tuneful son of Aeolus. Landing on Cumi's marshy shore, he reached a cavern, home of the long-lived Sibylla, and prayed that she would give him at the lake Avernus access to his father's shade. She raised her countenance from gazing on the ground, and with an inspiration given to her by influence of the gods, she said, much you would have, O man of famous deeds, whose courage is attested by the sword, whose filial piety is proved by flame. But, Trojan, have no fear. I grant your wish, and with my guidance you shall look upon the latest kingdom of the world, shall see Elysian homes and your dear father's shade, for virtue there is everywhere away. 
she spoke and pointed out to him a branch refulgent with bright gold found in the woods of juno of avernus and commanded him to pluck it from the stem aeneas did what she advised him then he saw the wealth of the dread orcus and he saw his own ancestors and beheld the aged ghost of great anchises there he learned the laws of that deep region and what dangers must be undergone by him in future wars retracing with his weary steps the path up to the light he found relief from toil in converse with the sage cumean guide while in thick dusk he trod the frightful way whether you are a deity he said or human and most favored by the gods to me you always will appear divine i will confess too my existence here is due to your kind aid for by your will i visited the dark abodes of death and i escaped the death which i beheld for this great service when i shall emerge into the sunlit air i will erect for you a temple and will burn for you the sweet incense kindled at the altar flame the prophetess looked on him and with sighs i am no goddess she replied nor is it well to honor any mortal head with tribute of the holy frankincense and that you may not err through ignorance i tell you life eternal without end was offered to me if i would but yield virginity to phoebus for his love and while he hoped for this and in desire offered to bribe me for my virtue first with gifts he said maiden of cumi choose whatever you may wish and you shall gain all that you wish i pointed to a heap of dust collected there and foolishly replied as many birthdays must be given to me as there are particles of sand for i forgot to wish them days of changeless youth he gave long life and offered youth besides if i would grant his wish this i refused i live unwedded still my happier time has fled away now comes with tottering step infirm old age which i shall long endure you find me ending seven long centuries and there remain for me before my years equal the number of those grains of sand three hundred harvests three hundred vintages the time will come when long increase of days will so contract me from my present size and so far waste away my limbs with age that i shall dwindle to a trifling weight so trifling it will never be believed i was once loved and even pleased a god perhaps even phoebus will not recognize me or will deny he ever bore me love but though i change till i would never know me my voice shall live the fates will leave my voice sibylla with such words beguiled their way from stygian realms up to the eubean town trojan aeneas after he had made due sacrifice in cumi touched the shore that had not yet been given his nurse's name there macarius of neritus had come companion of long-tried ulysses there he rested weary of his lengthened toils he recognized one left in etna's cave greek achaemenides and all amazed to find him yet alive he said to him what chance or what god achaemenides preserves you why is this barbarian ship conveying you a greek what land is sought no longer ragged in the clothes he wore and his own master wearing clothes not tacked with sharp thorns achaemenides replied again may i see polyphemus jaws out streaming with their slaughtered human blood if my own home in ithaca give more delight to me than this barbarian bark or if i venerate aeneas less than my own father if i should give my all it never could express my gratitude that i can speak and breathe and see the heavens illuminated by the gleaming sun how can i be ungrateful and forget all this because of him these limbs of mine were spared the cyclops jaws and though i were even now to leave the light of life i should at worst be buried in a tomb not in his maw what were my feelings when unless indeed my terror had deprived me of all sense left there i saw you making for the open sea 
I wished to shout aloud, but was afraid it would betray me to the enemy. The shoutings of Ulysses nearly caused destruction of your ship, and there I saw the Cyclops when he tore a crag away and hurled the huge rock in the whirling waves. I saw him also throw tremendous stones with his gigantic arms. They flew afar as if impelled by catapults of war. I was struck dumb with terror lest the waves or stones might overwhelm the ship, forgetting that I was still on the shore. But when your flight had saved you from that death of cruelty, the Cyclops, roaring rage, paced all about Mount Etna, groping through its forests with his outstretched arms. Deprived of sight, he stumbled there against the rocks until he reached the sea. And, stretching out his gore-stained arms into its waters there, he cursed all of the Grecian race, and said, Oh, that some accident would carry back Ulysses to me, or but one of his companions, against whom my rage might vent itself, whose joints my hand might tear, whose blood might drench my throat, whose living limbs might quiver in my teeth. How trifling then, how insignificant would be the loss of my sight which he took from me. All this and more, he said. A ghastly horror took possession of me when I saw his face and every feature streaming yet with blood, his ruthless hands and the vile open space where his one eye had been, and his coarse limbs and his beard matted through with human blood. It seemed as if death were before my eyes, yet that was but the least part of my woe. I seemed upon the point of being caught, my flesh about to be the food of his. Before my mind was fixed the time I saw two bodies of my loved companions dashed three or four times hard against the ground, when he above them, like a lion, crouched, devouring quickly in his hideous jaws their entrails and their flesh and their crushed bones, white-marrowed, and their mangled, quivering limbs. A trembling fear seized on me as I stood pallid and without power to move from there, while I recalled him chewing greedily and belching out his bloody banquet from his huge mouth, vomiting crushed pieces mixed with phlegmy wine, and I feared such a doom in readiness awaited wretched me, most carefully concealed for many days, trembling at every sound and fearing death, although desiring death, I fed myself on grass and acorns mixed with leaves. Alone and destitute, despondent unto death, awaiting my destruction, I lost hope. In that condition a long while, at last I saw a ship not far off, and by signs prayed for deliverance as I ran in haste down to the shore. My prayers prevailed on them. A Trojan ship took in and saved a Greek. And now, O dearest to me of all men, tell me of your adventures, of your chief and comrades when you sailed out on the sea. Then Macarius told him of Aeolus, the son of Hippotus, whose kingdom is the Tuscan Sea, whose prison holds the winds, and how Ulysses had received the winds tied in a bull's hide bag, an awesome gift, how nine days with a favoring breeze they sailed and saw afar their longed-for native land, how, as the tenth day dawned, the crew was moved by envy and a lust for gold, which they imagined hidden in that leathern bag, and so untied the thong which held the winds. These rushing out had driven the vessel back over the waves which they had safely passed, back to the harbor of King Aeolus. From there, he said, we sailed until we reached the ancient city of Lamus, Lestragon. Antiphates was reigning in that land, and I was sent with two men of our troop, ambassadors, to see him. Two of us escaped with difficulty, but the third stained the accursed Lestragonians' jaws with his devoted blood. Antiphates pursued us, calling out his murderous horde. They came, and, hurling stones and heavy beams, they overwhelmed and sank both ships and men. One ship escaped, on which Ulysses sailed. Grieving, lamenting for companions lost, we finally arrived at that land which you may discern far off, and, trust my word, far off it should be seen. I saw it near. 
and, O most righteous Trojan Venus' son Aeneas, whom I call no more a foe, I warn you now, avoid the shores of Circe. We moored our ship beside that country, too, but, mindful of the dangers we had run, with Lestragons and cruel Polyphemus, refused to go ashore. Ulysses chose some men by lot, and told them to seek out a roof which he had seen among the trees. The lot took me, then staunch Polides next, Eurylochus, Alpinor fond of wine, and eighteen more, and brought us to the walls of Circe's dwelling. As we drew near and stood before the door, a thousand wolves rushed out from woods nearby, and with the wolves there ran she-bears and lionesses dread to see. And yet we had no cause to fear, for none would harm us with the smallest scratch. Why, they in friendship even wagged their tails and fawned upon us while we stood in doubt. Then handmaids took us in and led us on through marble halls to the presence of their queen. She, in a beautiful recess, sat on her throne, clad richly in a shining purple robe, and over it she wore a golden veil. Nereids and nymphs, who never carded fleece with motion of their fingers nor drew out a ductile thread, were setting potent herbs in proper order and arranging them in baskets. A confusing wealth of flowers were scattered among leaves of every hue, and she prescribed the tasks they all performed. She knew the natural use of every leaf and combinations of their virtues when mixed properly, and, giving them her close attention, she examined every herb as it was weighed. When she observed us there and had received our greetings and returned them, she smiled, as if we should be well received. At once she had her maidens bring a drink of parched barley, of honey and strong wine, and curds of milk, and in the nectarous draught she added secretly her baleful drugs. We took the cups presented to us by her sacred right hand, and as soon as we so thirsty quaffed them with our parching mouths, that ruthless goddess with her outstretched wand touched lightly the topmost hair upon our heads. Although I am ashamed I tell you this, stiff bristles quickly grew out over me, and I could speak no more. Instead of words, I uttered hoarse murmurs, and towards the ground began to bend and gaze with all my face. I felt my mouth take on a hardened skin with a long, crooked snout, and my neck swell with muscles. With the very member which a moment earlier had received the cup, I now made tracks in sand of the palace court. Then, with my friends, who suffered a like change, charms have such power, I was prisoned in a sty. We saw Eurylochus alone avoid our swinish form, for he refused the cup. If he had drained it, I should still remain one of a bristly herd, nor would his news have made Ulysses sure of our disaster and brought a swift avenger of our fate. Peace-bearing Hermes gave him a white flower from a black root, called Moly by the gods. With this protection, and the gods' advice, he entered Circe's hall, and, as she gave the treacherous cup and with her magic wand essayed to touch his hair, he drove her back and terrified her with his quick-drawn sword. She gave her promise, and, right hands exchanged, he was received unharmed into her couch, where he required the bodies of his friends awarded him as his prized marriage gift. We then were sprinkled with more favored juice of harmless plants, and smitten on the head with the magic wand reversed, and new charms were repeated, all conversely to the charms which had degraded us. Then, as she sings, more and yet more we raise ourselves erect, the bristles fall off and the fissures leave our cloven feet, our shoulders overcome their lost shape, and our arms become attached as they had been before. With tears of joy we all embrace him, also weeping tears, and we cling fondly to our chieftain's neck. Not one of us could say a single word till thus we had attested gratitude. End of Book 14, Part 1 Recording by Brian Haggerty, Minneapolis, Minnesota